If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you also look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of God. Well, last week we began this section in Philippians. I think it's really the heart of the letter, and it deals with unity. I think it's a a needed challenge for the church in general. I think it's something that we don't understand frequently. When we consider the church in Philippi and what they were going through, suffering, hardship, challenges, it's pretty clear that there are struggles with the division when you go to chapter 4, when you consider chapter 3. This church had challenges just like any church will. I think we have an obligation to ask, why is unity important, perhaps maybe even before we jump into the text? I want you to consider that you grew up in rural America 200 years ago, where there's a small community that you live in with one church. And I want you to imagine that you don't get along with someone in that church. What then was your option? Moving wasn't easy. There was no car where you could drive to the nearest county and maybe endure a 45-minute drive to a church. That walk would take you two days. If you're going to attend church, you just had to go to the community church that was there. You had no other option. There was one pastor, maybe one pastoral team, and if you didn't like them, tough. All of a sudden, in a community like that, unity is something that is not only necessary, it's hard to sustain. Whereas in a church like ours in the modern time, where if you don't like something, if you feel like the preacher preaches too long, if someone gives you the stink eye when you walk into church, if someone offends you and says they don't like your hair, you just drive to a church down the road. You find one that suits your taste, it suits your sensibilities, where the preacher preaches just the right amount of time, where the seats are just perfectly cushioned, where they sing the songs that are your flavor, And the need for unity is, I think, somehow less felt, but no less needed. In fact, I would suggest for you that a lot of what we see in the modern church is not biblical unity. To be clear, we're not actually even talking about unity. That means we assemble in the same locale. Paul's writing this from Rome, and he doesn't consider himself disunified with people who are hundreds of miles away that he has not seen for an extended amount of time. He, in fact, in verse 5, says we are partners together in the gospel. 
So when he talks about unity, he is not talking about gathering within the same building. He is talking about a much deeper and more difficult unity to maintain. He is talking about unity together in the gospel of Jesus Christ that resists temptations to fragment. It resists the temptations to sin against each other and not deal with it. It resists the pressures of society that wants to destroy the faithfulness to Christ that every believer and every community of believers must hold. There are pressures on our society to make our worship shallow. There are pressures from our society to reduce the edges of the gospel that cut society with its own guilt. There are pressures in our society to reduce the implications of the gospel for sexual purity, for holiness when it comes to even our vocabulary, for, for carefulness with regard to our entertainment. And so that now what we essentially are appealing for in our Christian community, broadly speaking, is nothing more than a warmed over, better version of society where we are just a little bit more wholesome, a little bit more careful, a little bit more prudish, but not actually Christian. And that is not the unity God calls us to. And to be Continuing pressing the point on unity here, unity is not that we actually like the things that are superficial about one another. In other words, it's perfectly okay for you to dislike my <clears throat> salmon-colored tie. It's not pink. And not feel as though you've threatened unity. It is also okay for you to be incorrectly thinking it's pink. And I will not be offended, nor think we're disunified. I'll know you're wrong. But again, unity is not threatened by superficial things. My concern is that sometimes we misunderstand unity. We make unity like, like kind of this kumbaya, campy feel. Where we all hold hands and love each other and never mention each other's struggles or weaknesses. Never do the hard work of confronting someone else's sin. And we all just get along. That is not the rigorous, theologically rich unity that Scripture demands of us. Nor is it sustainable by the Holy Spirit. And there are some things that God never gives us the grace to do because he doesn't want or, or, or care that our unity be based on you liking, for instance, my tie. I think God wants you to be unified with me regardless of how much my tie offends you. I'm using that as an example because I don't care. And I think we're that shallow sometimes when it comes to what we are offended by or loyal to. And these are not the things the Holy Spirit gives us grace to be unified on. So let me keep building this foundation a little bit more before we jump into the text. If our unity does not require a supernatural act of grace, then we are wrongly defining unity. If unity does not require a super, supernatural work of God within our hearts to sustain, maybe we could say if it could be effectively plagiarized by the world, it's actually not Christian unity. The, the world loves the world. 
when they all wear the same thing, do the same thing, go to the same concert. They, they share in common things that are, are superficial. Maybe put a, a more blunt point on it. I think at times for you to be spiritually unified with me, you need a supernatural work of grace. Otherwise, you will not be unified with me. That's how bad Mark is. Which requires a lot of all of us. It requires a persistence and a dedication to be together when together hurts as hard or we don't like it. It requires us to be forgiving and long-suffering. The text this morning starts with a theological foundation by which we essentially can make this point. No unbeliever can share the type of unity that the church must have. Look with me in verse 1, chapter 2. If there is any encouragement, where? In Christ. He starts at this foundation. If you don't have Christ in common with each other, this type of unity is a pipe dream. You cannot have it. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and he continues on. It's, it's I, I think, understandable by most of us, but what we think and what we understand about the realities of life drives our responses to it. Uh, let, let me see by illustration if we can at least understand the the point I think Paul is making here. That is, these theological truths, which are known and understood as true, should change the way we respond to those frictions within the church. Now, making the point about our response of, of understanding, I want you to imagine that you have just bought your first home. You've taken possession of it. You've signed it. You, you've, you've bought it. You're now hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and you're excited. You and your wife, (laughs) irony there, isn't there? You and your wife or you and your husband drive up, you pull up to the house, and your heart sinks because it is an inferno. And your spouse looks at you in despair. And you pull out your insurance, and you realize that you have incredibly good coverage. You're guaranteed full rental price for replacement while you are without a house. They cover up to 120% of the purchase price of the house. And all of a sudden you realize that if you had strategically burnt the house down, you could not do better financially. This is actually a blessing. And your heart goes from like discouragement and sorrow to relief and maybe even a little bit of weird joy. All because you read a piece of paper with a little bit of ink on it that guaranteed you an outcome. The only thing that changed was what you knew about what happened and what the response would be. There are times, I think, in the Christian life where in the middle of hurt and pain, we forget what God has guaranteed to be true. And because of that, our responses are incredibly misguided and ungodly. And so the apostle starts by saying, hey, don't forget these truths are guiding truths for unity. They build a foundation, and if you forget them, your unity is going to be difficult, if not impossible. 
And he kind of lists four fairly quickly. Here's what they are. Encouragement in Christ actually speaks to the element of comfort. 2 Corinthians reminds us that God is the God of all comfort. The apostle says that we abundantly share in Christ's sufferings and we will also share in his comfort. Later in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of the comfort that God has given him. He says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us. So we come into this text and he says, this is one of those reminders in the middle of suffering when life is hurting you, when you are getting crushed by the pressures of life. And literally for them, it could be threat of imprisonment, loss of money, or, or actual beatings and, and physical persecution. It says in the middle of that, remember that our comfort comes from Christ, not circumstances. It comes from the, the very comfort that Christ comforted himself with. And then he says, any comfort from love. Love gives us that, that understanding that God secures his commitment to us by the blood of Christ, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished. It is a guarantee that secures us and keeps us when we are struggling, it means that, that we are so insured against damnation because of Christ that the threat to our money, our health, our family, our own very lives is actually no threat at all. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Gain. And so when the worst they can do with you is give you death that causes you to actually gain you find deep comfort in the security of knowing not only the comfort of Christ, but the love of God that cannot be taken away and is not even threatened by your own feckless and unfaithful heart. That's incredible. That God could not love you more than he already does. And that there is nothing you can do as a believer who has been secured eternally by the eternal redemption of Christ. There is nothing you can do to jeopardize God's commitment to love you forever. Nothing. But he doesn't stop there. He says participation in the Spirit. Now, as, as the modern era of the church, we have woefully misunderstood the Spirit and we have warped his, his work in this world so that we fairly unbiblically think of him we're fairly regularly un unfairly that's not coming out right i'll just move on we get it wrong so the holy spirit is the one who applies to us the work of redemption it is through the work of the holy spirit and his indwelling ministry by which we are regenerated and given new life this is what Jesus speaks of in John 3 when he speaks to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. He's speaking of the spirit-given work to give us life. But it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we have access through the work of Christ to God. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you have the hope of resisting sin. It is through the intercession and the ministry of the Holy Spirit by which our prayers are carried to the throne room of God with groanings beyond our own comprehension. 
It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we are able to be strengthened, to have Christ-like character. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. He seals us. He fills us. He convicts us. He leads us. He pleads our cause. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of our redemption. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Now, notice how he's appealing to the Philippians. There's comfort in Christ. There is love from God. There is participation in the manifold grace of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know what he's not appealing to? Their likes, their dislikes. He's not appealing to some external, uh, non-eternal gift. He is speaking to those things that not only do all the believers have in common, these are byproducts of saving grace. Maybe we could say it this way. These are these, the types of comforts, the types of helps, the types of graces that are never jeopardized in the middle of suffering and by which they allow us to be hurt by others and not respond with self-defense. Again, not that you would ever be guilty of arson. But if perhaps, during a downturn in the economy, it is much more profitable for you to lose your house in an inferno than keep it. That would not be uncommon in recessions. And you saw a friend lighting a fire to your house. Rather than responding with anger, you might be sad that they are now committing an act of crime, but the personal injury is minimal. In fact, there's, it's, there's no threat if you're insured well. How much better and clearer is our security and our grace that we have in Christ. So when another believer or the world around us presses us and hurts us and inflicts injury on us, why do you need to respond with anger? Why do you need to defend that which they cannot take away? And in fact, we know that suffering leads to glory. Right? Isn't that what the New Testament says? That that. That suffering with Christ leads to glory with Christ? Yes, it does. I'm sure you all knew that. So I want you to consider then, if, if I have comfort because I know I'm secure in Christ, if I know God's love for me cannot be threatened and is eternal, I know that I participate in the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. If then the Lord calls me to suffer, I know he is calling me to a pathway of glory. Why would I be angry? Why would I attack the person who's causing suffering? Because in that moment, what has happened is I have forgotten suffering precedes glory. Like this is the New Testament economy of the believer. Suffering precedes glory. So, so just, like, God is looking at you, and in his divine and kind providence, he says, sweet child of mine, 
I am calling you to a deep valley so that I can bring you to the heights of glory. And while we are descending into suffering, our heart and our soul scream, stop it, stop it, stop it. I don't want. We say suffering, but what we actually lose is glory. We lose out on the glory that Christ promises for all those who suffer for his sake. We lose out on the goodness of suffering. Do you think that when Peter says, it is necessary that for a time you're in this suffering, that he means something less than it is necessary? God does not ever call us to suffering just because he forgot or he's unkind or he likes watching people like hurting. Our God has secured us in a saving grace that was so lavishly expensive, it secures for us a confidence that no suffering, no pain, no hurt will ever come into our life except it has the divine hope of a better reward behind it. So Paul secures with this final thought if there's any affection and sympathy. I think with this he's bridging between the theological foundation because unity requires this participation in gospel grace. Unity requires us to know and be secure and be confident that this suffering in this present time is not meaningless. It's a promise of reward. But he, but he starts to bridge into the application with the affection and sympathy at the end of verse 1. That as we get these in salvation, and they are beginning to be reproduced in the church so that affection and sympathy are not only the experience from God, their experience among God's people within his church. God cares for us, and Christ is our sympathetic high priest, but these are immediately to be the response of other believers within suffering. Notice there, there are some things that are God's alone. Right? God, is, God is infinite in terms of space. In other words, we would say he's omnipresent. Some of us, we, we have a growing presence, and so we diet. But we are never called to be omnipresent. We are, however, called to be loving. We are, we are called to be holy. We are called to be like God in these ways. So while we're not called to be omnipresent or omniscient, these are things we cannot be, we are called to be holy, loving, and righteous. So we share in these attributes of God, and I think with Paul's last line here, he is saying, having experienced affection and sympathy from God, these are to be the economy with which we, we engage those who suffer and who cause our suffering. I am often struck by the lack of sympathy in the injured party. Have you ever heard two people argue where you can see they're, they're, they're not hearing the other person and one person's deeply wounded and they think the other person is just evil? And they, can't, they cannot understand why someone would be so evil. And as an as a unhurt witness, you recognize no injury was intended. It is very hard for, let me just do the air quotes, the victim to have any sympathy for the person who's caused them injury. And yet, for every believer who's experienced the sympathy of Christ, that is exactly what he's doing for us. Who do you hurt when you sin? Most deeply, your Savior. 
Or Ephesians today, we grieve the Spirit. And yet, who is sympathetic when we sin and struggle? Is it not the very priest who's appointed over us, who is sympathetic with us in our weaknesses? And our weaknesses hurt the priest. And so we come to this this thought in Philippians that there must be an affection and a sympathy not only for those who are hurting, but for those who cause the injury. That is, this is the church. We work to, sympathy would be the idea of suffer along with. Let me just use an example. And I think we would all recognize there is a righteous and an unrighteous element, but suffering all the way around. I want you to imagine a marriage in which there's been infidelity. And especially if it's not a deep and long type of infidelity, is there hurt among both parties? If you've worked with those couples, especially if they're both believers who are trying to pursue Christ, there is deep hurt on the the person who's innocent. They're wounded by the infidelity. But oftentimes, the the person who's violated the marriage covenant, who's hurt their spouse, is also suffering deeply because of the injury they've caused their marriage, the new disunity and the dysfunction in their home, and perhaps even the shame and the guilt that they rightly have. And the church can be graceless to the repentant sinner who's trying to fix his or her marriage. And yeah, we know they did damage to it. You know who is not sympathetic? Do you know who is not graceless? Do you know who loves and welcomes the sinner? Jesus. And Jesus, like the prodigal father who's pictured in Luke 15, when the sinner's coming home, he's not like, prove it. You know what the prodigal's father does? He sees him afar off and losing all dignity in the culture, runs to his son and throws his arms around him. His son's the injurer. His son assaulted his honor. His son abandoned him and rebelled against him and took a third of the inheritance away from his dad while his dad's still alive and essentially declared, I wish you were dead to the culture around him. And the father runs to his son who hurt him. We want to have unity in the church. We cannot merely be sympathetic and have affection for the innocent. Because we have a sweet and sympathetic high priest who in our weakness when we sin against him loves us, ran to us, threw his arms of forgiveness around us and said, welcome home, prodigal. If we want to have unity, we must be people who stand firmly in the theologically rich soils of gospel grace. There are no righteous people who get saved. Only unrighteous people get saved. We must not forget, none of us comes to God holy. We come to God wicked and are made holy by the perfect blood of Christ. Unity not only requires that theologically rich soil of the gospel, unity requires shared 
values, shared values. So we come to that second verse, and he says, complete my joy. And just, you've got to follow Paul a little bit here. Sometimes when we read little sections like we did this morning, you lose sight of the the elements of joy that he's been uh, speaking to them about. He prays every prayer with joy in verse 4 of chapter 1. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed, whether out of false motives or pure motives. He rejoices that Christ is preached. And now he says, this will complete my joy. But he's not done there. Ultimately, we come to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, you are my crown of joy, when he speaks of the church. He wants to celebrate the gospel with them. And so he says, pursue this As a minister of the gospel of Christ, this will give me joy. It shouldn't then be hard for us to understand that what he's calling for here is, again, not a campy kumbaya feeling of unity, but a committed, hardworking, deeply sacrificial unity around the person and message of Christ. Okay, So here's what he says in in verse 2 here. Complete my joy by being, and he lists three thoughts here, the same mind, the same love, being of full accord in one mind. You'll notice the word mind is used twice there. He is not calling us to clone ourselves and have everyone think the same things. He's calling for us to embrace the same values. You can can see this on any type of community endeavor where you require multiple people to do the same type of uh, or to pursue the same goal, whether it's athletics, a musical, orchestra, they're all trying to accomplish a unified goal, even though they'll come at it with a little bit different gifts and skills. So take, for example, an orchestra. Generally speaking, unless they're a musical phenom, someone's not playing all the instruments or able to even do so. Right? You have, you have various people playing various instruments, but they're all performing the same piece. Not super musical, so I'm looking at you guys, making sure I'm getting that right. You guys with me so far? The church, similarly, is not unified as though we are all playing the flute, playing the exact same note at the exact same time. No, we're unified because we have this central theme of Christ I think that's pretty evident. If we're to track through this entire, entire letter, let me just briefly hit some highlights. If you look in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul is speaking of gospel ministry, and it says, Some indeed preach Christ through envy, through rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? That in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Think of the purposes of God in the death of Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted whom? It says him, but we know it's Jesus Christ, right? This is who the topic is in this section. Bestowed on him a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
So the Apostle Paul, chapter 1, here's where I rejoice, Christ is preached. Chapter 2, the purposes of God and the death of Christ is to exalt Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, I consider everything loss for the sake of what? Christ. And what is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The apostle builds a theology in which he is saying this is the central theme about which all Christians are united. Complete my joy. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Have full unity in your souls and be united in this way. Christ supreme. If the Apostle Paul can rejoice when people are making it hard for him in prison because he finds Christ's being preached worth it, it is no surprise then why he would be able to call the Philippians to unity together with the same mission that Christ be proclaimed. That is a call for all of us that we would have this desire for unity by sharing a commitment to Christ that exceeds all other reasons for hurt or disunity or division. We would proclaim love and pursue the message and the person of Christ. Even Paul, when he summarizes his ministry to the Corinthians, says, I sought to know to do nothing among you except to preach Christ. Unity is ruined by selfishness. Okay, so we have this theological foundation in verse 1, and then we have this practical appeal to shared values in verse 2. Verse 3, it's ruined by selfishness. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time here, but it's worth focusing on for just a moment as the apostle just briefly runs by it into verse 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Greek can do this, English cannot. He actually has a double negative. He says, neither do not be conceited. Like in English, that means be conceited. In Greek, it's a way of emphasizing, strengthening. Do nothing out of conceit or selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, I think, is fairly evident. It is a desire to pursue your own agenda, and it usually contains the idea of fighting to get there. You can almost imagine two siblings fighting over the last piece of cake. They, they, they want it for themselves because we know they're not fighting to give it to each other. <laughs> they're, they're, they want it. And, and so selfish ambition ruins and corrupts unity, but then he says vainglory. The word we have in our translation is conceit. It's, it simply means empty glory. That is, you declare your glory, but there's no truth behind it. Perhaps you've seen or, or been part of a conversation in which someone that you know well enough to know that they're very much amplifying their credit is talking. You ever been in those situations? It's always interesting to me to hear people brag about what they've accomplished. I find it more enjoyable and fun when I know them well, and I'm like, hmm, hmm. So usually you'll get this like in, in any type of competitive environment, especially sports. You know, so you might recall a movie where there's this figure called Uncle Rico. Vainglory. 
bragging about how good and glorious he was if his coach would have just let him. There are a lot of Uncle Rico Christians convinced that they are fantastic Christians, praising their own worth with very little having been done for the cause of Christ. Empty vessels. They look like they're full of something worthwhile. They are empty, but they declare their own glory. This destroys and corrupts the unity of the church. This type of person wants to sit in the seat of visibility. They want to be influencers, but they have nothing between their ears with which to say when they get this, the opportunity to say it. They're declaring their own heroic deeds, having never gotten off the couch of their living room. They promise to pray for you, and they never get on their knees. They talk theology, but they don't have any discipline to live it. They criticize others, but they're unwilling to lift a hand to serve. They're easily offended because they're spiritually shallow. Their pocketbooks do not reflect a sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Their commitment to the Lord's people is only evident when everyone else can see it. Conceited. They're filled with selfish ambition. If someone tells them to do something that is sacrificial or asks them to be involved in a ministry that they do not think is of their status, they will decline. They would not want to waste their gifts on something like that. How different from the Savior. And so, so you actually have a play on words that, that you may miss. They are people with empty glory. And you come down to verses 5 and 6. It says, have the mind of Christ. Then in verse 6 he says, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 7, he emptied himself of glory. But Christ, who is full of glory, set his glory aside, emptied himself. Where we are just the opposite. We are empty vessels with nothing worth glorifying who call people to glorify and honor us. You want to ruin the sweet unity of, of a central vision about the pursuit and the preaching and the person of Christ? Be about yourself. Seek praise. Seek to be noticed. Try to get people to like you rather than helping people pursue Christ and love him. Unity is ruined by selfishness. Finally, unity requires humility. Unity requires humility. Look in verses 3 and 4. At the end of verse 3, he says, get rid of selfish ambition, get rid of conceit, but contrast in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. So here's, here's kind of the logic I think he works through here. In humility, so this is the attitude. How do we do this? We look at others and we evaluate them as more important and of higher rank than us. But I don't think he wants it to stop there. In fact, I think he's telling us how to do it in verse 4 then. So in verse 4 he says, You do this not by seeking your own interest, but by seeking the interest of others. 
Humility is always one of those tough words. Uh, I, I remember more my brother joking, so I don't want to steal his joke, how um, he was the most humble person he'd ever met. And he would always say it tongue-in-cheek, kind of loaf, laughing about it, and he's had another book on you know, the 10 most humble people um, and how I met the other nine. Humility is one of those awkward things to talk about because no one wants to say, I'm humble. Let me tell you how to get humility. Paul really carefully, I think, defines it for us. Here's what humility is. Humility is looking at other people and saying, they are of more importance than my concerns. Right? He's not talking about a, a false humility. You know, false humility will say things that sound humble while seeking to look humble. But verse 4 is the measure of how you're living then. How do you know you're living like a humble person? It's not a matter of words said. I mean, we've all met the self-effacing person. You know, like, if you want to get a lot of people talking about how pretty you are, be a high schooler and tell people you're not pretty. You know, everyone around you will do. They will tell you how pretty you are. And you will know it's not actually what they think. They're just trying to make you feel good, which actually doesn't make you even feel pretty. But, but we can fish for compliments with words of humility, which is actually not humble. And so Paul doesn't give us some kind of hollow message about humility. Look again in verse 4. Here's how you know you're humble. Looking to others' interests. Pursue the good of others in real life. It's not words. It's not, it's not just thinking about how bad you are. So we, I can sit in my living room and beat myself up. Sitting in my living room, beating myself up about how bad I am is actually not humility. That's very self-centered. If the center of my thought is me, I'm probably doing it wrong. The pursuit of humility is the pursuit of the real concerns of others. And here's what I mean by real concerns. The Christ word concerns of others. So, so we can be a little bit off track if we are not following the logic that the apostle has laid out for us. We are not to be people that are just um, giving people what they want. We are to be people that consider others and we try to help them pursue Christ by serving the genuine Christ word needs they have. Consider Jesus Christ's interaction with the Pharisees. Did he give them what they wanted? No, and, and he shouldn't have. Right? They wanted to be affirmed. They wanted to be glorified by Christ. They wanted Christ to exalt them. But to do so would have been harmful to them and all those watching. So Christ gives them what they need. They need to be rebuked. They need to be pointed out as not giving the true gospel of God. And so he does that because that was the most loving thing he could do for them. Did they feel very loved, do you think? I can only imagine being called a whited sepulcher by Jesus. That'd probably not be one of those self-affirming moments where I felt like all of society was looking at me and wanting to be me. I'd probably feel humiliated and hurt. That was precisely what they needed to hear. So if we're going to take verse 4 and understand it in its context, this is not a call to mow someone else's lawn. This is not a call 
for us to help others move their stuff because they're getting a new home. That might be an application, but this is a call to look around the room, to look in the community of God's people and ask the question, then pursue the answer of the question, how do I help this person have a better eternity before Christ? One day they will stand before him who will judge all people, and I want that day to be more glorious for them. And then you do it. That means conversations must be flavored with grace. But sometimes they're hard conversations. That means conversations need to be backed with prayer and consideration. I can't move you to Christ if I don't know you well. I mean, in some generic sense, perhaps I can, but the thought is that I would look at the needs of the community of God's people around me, and I would shape and move my life to help them get to Christ and be more like him. That's the call and the burden of the Christian. How do you know someone's humble? Everyone around them is moved towards Christ as much as they have the power to do it. How do you know someone's humble? They're not asking the church to serve them, to give to them, to help them. They're looking at the church and they are dying for the sake of the church like Christ did. Jesus Christ gives himself an example. If we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what do we need to be in this life? If you want to be first, you must be last. That's what Paul is saying. That's true humility. If we want to be honored in heaven, if we want the reward of Christ, and therefore the pleasure of Christ, right? Christ rewards those who please him then we have to pursue the pattern of life that he laid for us. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here the call of Christ when it comes to unity then is to stand secure in the, the, the theological soils that, that anchor me not to be responsive and defensive when I'm hurt, but to be a person of peace. Because my security is not in what you give to me, or vice versa. Your security should not be what I give to you. My security is anchored to the works of salvation that God has done for me that cannot be jeopardized by any other human. My response does not need to defend or get from you. So then the attitude is, if we want as a community to not lose our unity, we must share vision and mission. What is this church about? Everyone should say Christ. What brings us together? Christ. What keeps us together? Preaching Christ. What are we giving money for? For the work of Christ. Well, do you like each other? I hope so. That's not what unifies us. It's not shared superficial stuff. I am committed. You are committed to loving people who share the mission and the vision and the ministry of Christ. That's what unites us. And do you think the best sports team in history actually liked each other? Oh, they're committed to the same goals. Sweet unity is not built around shared hobbies 
or even shared locale, but a shared love and passion for the ministry of the Savior. And this is a sweet unity we have because we can be deeply committed to gospel partnerships with people who are in Southeast Asia, in India, Africa, not because we share an assembly, but because we share a joint burden to pursue the mission of Christ. Ministry and unity are not unified around the superficial things that often we measure unity by. It is ruined by selfish ambition and conceit. It is cultivated by hearts that pursue the good of others. We do that as we pull and move people to love and pursue Christ. May God give this church the type of unity that cannot be imitated or plagiarized by the world, but is only sustained by the supernatural grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. I ask this morning that you would strengthen our hearts to love our Savior by loving his people and loving them towards Christ. Unite us with having the same mind, the same heart, and of being together with one spirit. Lord, help us to not respond to suffering with self-defensive words, with counterattacks, with withdrawal, with unkindness. Rather, Lord, let us entrust ourselves to the one who protects and guards and defends us, that we might find the comfort of Christ, the love of God, the unity of the Spirit, and the sympathy and the affection that we receive from our Lord reproduced in our midst as we respond with grace and love and kindness and sympathy and affection to those who hurt us. Lord, help us to love you by loving your people well. Help us to forget our own agendas and pursue the one that Christ has redeemed us to pursue, that we might promote the glory of Christ and the Christ-likeness of his people. In Jesus' name, amen.